dear congregation, it's good to be back. Uh, thank you for praying for me. Many of you said yesterday we were praying for you in the middle of all that. Thank you for that. I really appreciate it. This is my fourth time here in Cleveland for a conference, uh, but one of those was canceled, remember? I never got out of the airport on that one. We had the assurance conference, the non-conference, the sanctification conference, and then now the Trinity conference. And so thank you for your hospitality and, of course, for your prayers. Uh, the Lord is certainly faithful, is he not? His mercies are new, what? Every morning. Amen. Well, my son and his friend years ago needed to go to the skate park. And so I was taking Tony and Luke to the skate park. And our family, we drive by churches, and then we kind of analyze the churches. Oh, Unitarian, that means no deity of Jesus. Uh, universalism, everybody dies and goes to heaven. Congregational, Baptist, whatever they are, and where we drive by churches, we notice. And so we drove past one particular church on the way there. Luke and Tony were in the back. And uh, Luke said, Agape Baptist Church. And Tony said, it's agape, you idiot. <laughs> and I turned around while I was driving and I said to Tony, it's agape, you idiot. <laughs> of course, agape is love, right? Sacrificial love, divine love. And agape is your mouth is open so wide because you're surprised, you're in awe, you're in wonder, you have your mouth agape. And so this morning we're going to look at the triune God and I hope your response is you stand there with your mouths agape. This is one of those doctrines that if we're not careful, you become vexed, you become, well, I can't understand every little detail, therefore instead of praising the Lord and worshiping Him for who He has revealed Himself to be, one God, three persons, we... we we went on the flip side to think, you know what? There's never been anything like this in my life. There's no one like this in my life. I mean, maybe you've got a few of those times in your, in your life where you think, I am so amazed and in, in awe. They don't happen that often, right? I think of a few in my life. On my list of my mouth, stand, my mouth agape is when Kim said yes to my marriage proposal. I thought I had to ask her a second time because I wanted to make sure I heard first the right time that she would marry me. You have children, maybe, and you watch your children be born. Four times I stood there thinking, this is incredible. I am in awe as I've watched these children come out of my wife. And a few of the kids, I said in front of the nurses, I'd say, ain't evolution grand? <laughs> I mean, it's just shocking, you know, the wonder of it all and the praise. And you just, it elicits crying, tears of joy. And you think, wow, this is amazing. Uh, I've done a few other things in life. I've gone skydiving. I've stood next to the Sea of Galilee and picked up a rock and skipped that rock, and I thought, you know, there's nothing like this in all the world. Maybe you think to yourself, well, I stand on the beaches of Normandy and Omaha Beach, and you just have that kind of still moment where you think, I'm, I'm in awe. But of course, for all of us, at the top of our list, probably without question, is when you got saved, when you realized by the grace of God that you were a sinner, but there was a solution to your problem and that you could stand before this thrice holy God on judgment day and you'd be okay. More than that, you'd be accepted and you think to yourself, there's nothing like that. You know, we sing hymns, the wonder of it all, right? That God would save someone like me and I, I'm glad for that. But this morning, I'd like to talk about not what we receive, although as good as it is that we've received salvation, but from whom did we receive it? 
So today we're going to talk about the triune God who does the saving, and I have one main goal today. When you think of God as Trinity, you think of praise. I want this to be praise-inducing, not, well, I can't figure it out, and wait, there's so many errors, and there's so many issues, and this separates us, this divides us, what's going on? I want you to respond instead with, as Pat quoted yesterday, Romans 11, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. I just want you to think, you know, this is praise-inducing. Maybe I'm going to give you a little today, a little spiritual Pitocin. Anybody ever had Pitocin here to induce those babies? Some have. I'm glad only ladies raised their hand. <laughs> and if praise is what we're after, then this should influence the life of the local church, you and your own devotions, in evangelism, when you go to work, very, very relevant topic. Spurgeon said, the proper study of a Christian is the Godhead, the Trinity. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God. Spurgeon writes, there's something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It's a vast subject that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. And so that's what I'm after this morning. Very simply, that you think of God as triune and then you think He's praiseworthy because of who He is. One famous American theologian said, And God has appeared glorious to me on account of the Trinity. It has made me have exalting thoughts of God that He subsists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When you went home last night, I thought, I hope you were thinking, God is triune. What does that mean? I have questions. I'd like to know more about this, that, and the other. God is triune. And of course, if God, the Holy Spirit, is a force, then He doesn't deserve any praise. If Jesus isn't God, then we have no adoration given to Him. And if the Father doesn't send the Son and the Spirit, then who cares? The London Baptist Confession was written in 1689, and it says this about God and the Trinity. There is but one and only one living and true God. He is self-existent and infinite in His being and perfections. Three divine persons constitute the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are one in substance, in power, and eternity. And so before we get to a passage today, we want to just keep thinking rightly about who God is and God and three persons. Let's talk about the words Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before we get into the passage. Why is God called Father? Well, He wants to be called Father, but because He is a Father of a Son. What do fathers do? They beget sons, and that's why he's called the father. What does it mean to be a father? Uh, he's certainly not mortal because he's from all eternity, and he eternally begets his son. And Gregory, this great theologian 2,000 years ago about, asked this question, who then is the father that had no beginning? Answer, he is a father like, and no, unlike any other father. While our fathers must first be born, grow into maturity, and then father children, this father has always been a father. It is his nature to be a father, to generate the son, and to spirate or breathe the spirit. 
Sometimes there's an analogy, humanly speaking, between father and son, but not always because we're talking about God. Well, what about the son? Well, the son is the son because he's from the father from all eternity. He's begotten, not made. He is begotten by the father. And I know what you're doing already. I just looked up and people are like, oh, your steam's coming out of your... You ever see those shows? Well, who is that that has the steam coming out of the ears? Is that some kind of show? Is it Bugs Bunny? I was thinking it was Boris and Rocky or something. Bowwinkle? Uh, Bo, uh, yeah, some kind of show about communism or something. <laughs> and we all watched as children, right? Christopher Hall said, The Father begets the Son, but not in a human manner and not in time. The Son is begotten and has always been begotten. Very interesting. Hard to figure out. But by the way, tell me if you can figure out a human birth and describe a human birth. If a human birth is hard to describe, then that the Father is always unbegotten, but the Son is eternally begotten from the Father and not made, well, that shouldn't surprise us. That's difficult. This Father and Son, they share a common essence. And there was never a time the Father wasn't a Father and the Son wasn't a Son. And the Holy Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son. And we use names like Father, Son, and Spirit, so we realize, well, there's a relationship between the three. How do they relate? It's called mutual relations. One God, three persons. Luther said, we should, like little children, stammer out what the Scriptures teach, that the Father's truly God, Christ is truly God, and the Holy Spirit is truly God, and yet that there are not three gods, nor three beings, nor three men, nor three angels, nor three windows. And by the way, the Bible just assumes the Trinity, right? It just assumes that you just read verses that Pat read yesterday, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the singular name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 13, the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God, the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to Titus chapter 1, and we're going to talk about the triune God in Titus chapter 1. I'd ask this question while you're turning there. Why don't you think you hear more sermons on the Trinity than you do in general population? I know they're talked about here, but why don't we hear more sermons about the Trinity well, some people think the Trinity is boring. That's one of the reasons. They just think, you know what, this is boring. It separates people. Before you know it, you're calling out names of people that don't believe the same thing. Other times people think, you know what, it's just hard. How many people think here the doctrine of the Trinity is kind of mind-bending? It's hard. So we better just give the people what they want, easy sermons. Uh, you don't want to be a pastor and talk about the Trinity and basically shoot an air ball in basketball for a free throw. You ever see those guys? Pro basketball players still shoot air balls from the free throw line. And here we get up for a Trinity conference and all of a sudden we start saying things that aren't right. There's one man that said, dear seminary students, I'm going to challenge you to get up and talk about the Trinity for three minutes and see if you can't make a mistake. Because there's so many heresies that probably the more you talk, the more you're going to run into trouble. But I think the biggest reason people don't think Trinity is, they don't see the Trinity preaches, they think it's irrelevant. God is irrelevant to them. And you know what? Whether God's tritheistic or modalistic, I don't care. Just love Jesus. Uh, as long as you can help me get through the day, one God, who cares? Three persons, who cares? I, I just need to know how to work better. Immanuel Kant said, 
the doctrine of the Trinity provides nothing, absolutely nothing of practical value. It costs the students nothing to accept that we adore three persons or ten persons in the divinity. Furthermore, there's no guidance for conduct when you learn about the Trinity. And I'm thinking, these people, and we call them on No Compromise Radio, these people are whack jobs. Right? We, God isn't relevant, sin isn't relevant, hell isn't relevant. This morning, I want you to think of God and think to yourself, He's worthy of praise. Praise Him, praise Him. Well, we come to this passage in Titus chapter 1, and Paul is writing to Titus. Titus is on an island called what? Crete. Was Crete a good place? We went there years ago, and the people in Athens said, be careful of the Cretans because they lie a lot, and they're lazy, and they're gluttons. I thought that was very interesting in light of Titus chapter 1, verse 12. We're going to look at this passage, and here's, here's kind of what we're going to be after. That if you have a good theology, doctrine of God, a word about God, theos, logos, word about God, that it will drive you to the proper doxology, praising. So people want to praise Him, praise Him. They want to sing about praise. They want to experience praise. I'm glad for all that. But it comes from theology. So that's why you're here today, I'm certain, because you think, okay, a, a doctrine of the Trinity is difficult, and we have a whole conference on it, but if you want to praise God properly, it leads, it stems from a proper theology. So that's just kind of a good little paradigm to tuck into your theological categories. Theology leads to doxology. Good thinking about God leads to right praise about God. And we're going to look at this chapter just the first few verses, and we're going to think about God, the triune God, and how He is a promise keeper. How many guys were involved in promise keepers? How many days did it take you to break some of those seven extra promises that you promised you would keep? So we're going to talk about the real promise keeper, a God who promises, decrees, makes covenants as the triune God, the promise-keeping God. And maybe you're going to say to yourself, I'd like to know what God was doing before he created everything. By the way, Augustine was asked that question, what was God doing before he created the world? Remember what Augustine said? Creating hell for curious souls. <laughs> but we're not going to see that here today. I'm sure he was being tongue-in-cheek. Let me read verses 1 and, and 2. And we'll talk about this a little bit in light of the triune God. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. But at the proper time revealed his word and the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. So Paul writes to Titus, his legate, his understudy, and here's how pastoral ministry is going to work. And by the way, Paul, why are you in pastoral ministry? What happens uh, when the Lord uses a man like Paul? Well, Paul says, first of all, I'm in gospel ministry for the faith of God's elect. Do you see it there in verse 1? Amazingly, Paul preaches the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, talks about the need of the gospel, sin, talks about the fruit of the gospel, good works, and God saves people through the preaching of the gospel. It's right there, for the faith of God's elect, right? As many has been appointed to eternal life, Acts 13, 48, 
believed. And so one of the things that pastoral ministry is about is you preach, preach, preach. John's preaching every week. And when unbelievers show up, they hear the truth of God's word. And if they're elect, uh, the Spirit of God applies uh, uh, the great salvation to their life and makes them born again. And Paul says, this is gospel ministry. I'm preaching to unbelievers. And the elect unbelievers respond at the Spirit's good pleasure. Not only that, what about their holy living? I mean, you get saved, you're justified, you stand before God as uncondemned, but what about godly living? And Paul said, that's why I'm also in pastoral ministry, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. And when you're learning the truth, by the way, even about the Trinity, as a side note, which accords with godliness. Of course, I'm in pastoral ministry because when I preach, people get saved, not because of me, but in spite of me, through me, and also, they begin to learn and grow. And they say yes to righteousness. They say no to sin. And they begin this life where God, the triune God, sanctifies. And then, of course, God does what? He glorifies in the hope of eternal life. And I'm pointing people as a pastor. Don't just preach to have the unbelievers get saved, although I do. And I don't preach just only to have the believers grow in faith and godliness. But I'm also preaching that there's hope of eternal life. And now let's slow down a little bit. Which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Okay, Cretans. You see verse 12. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. You live on an island of liars. How many people here watch Survivor? In the old days, they had, they had uh, Exile Island. And one of the people in this TV show, this reality show, you get voted off and you have to go to a lonely island called Liar Island? They're on Liar Island, and so he begins to talk to them about the God who never lies. They had so many lies on that island. Matter of fact, Zeus, according to the Cretans, uh, had to lie to have sexual relations with women, taking the form of, of their husband. This Zeus, they said, was buried in Crete. And according to one man, that was also a lie. <laughs> Everybody's lying all the time. But there's this God that Paul talks about who cannot lie. The God who never lies. The unlying God. Well, what does this unlying God do? Well, he tells the truth, but he, he makes a promise. And verse 2, as you've probably been taught, promise before the ages began. Does it say promise to them? It just says God promised. To whom did God make the promise? Oh, I know who he made the promise to, angels. No, they haven't been created. Well, maybe animals he made a promise to. Oh, I know, Methuselah. He made the promise to Methuselah because at least, it, how old was Methuselah? Does anybody remember the exact number for Bible trivia? By the way, if you're ever wanting to play Bible trivia with the pastor, he'll never play with you because he can't win. Because if he wins, he's supposed to win. And if he loses, this is his job. He should know Bible trivia. <laughs> I never play Bible trivia with anybody. 969 years old. Maybe God made a promise to him. Did he make a promise to Adam? Make a promise to Eve? Did you know the Trinity solves this problem? To whom did God make the promise before there was no one born? If you have a, 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 a Unitarian God, there's no one to promise, right? He's just promising emptiness. 
To whom then did God make the promise? Before time, no creation, no people, no one, no angels, no space, no matter, no time. 2 Timothy 1.9, God saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. There's a promise in eternity past. Before Genesis 1, a promise, a pact, a covenant, a decree. In the internal working of God, sometimes you hear words, Latin words, and of course, if you don't like Latin, that's okay. Just watch R.C. Sproul a bunch, and he always has to write Latin words on the board. I just think that's so good. One time, maybe I was with you, Pat, we got to see R.C. Sproul write a Latin word on a chalkboard, and I thought, I've just received the R.C. Sproul anointing. <laughs> it is just wonderful now. If you ever heard the, hear the words ad intra, we're talking about the internal relationship of the God. Before the Son is incarnate, what's God like? What's going on? And I want to tell you, we don't know everything, but we know there was a promise made within the Trinity. These, not three gods, but one God, three subsistences we call them, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One in substance, one in power, one in eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet that essence is undivided, and they make a promise. And I'm, I'm glad they make a promise. Even that, whatever God does, we want to say thank you for that because He does things well. He does things for His own pleasure, and He makes a promise. Luther said, Christianity did not originate by accident or in the fate of stars, as many empty-headed people presume, but it became what it was to be by a certain counsel and premeditation of God, the triune God. In eternity past, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, make a promise, a pact, a decree. And to me, when you study this in other passages like Ephesians chapter 3, verse 11, it's a singular word, decree. It doesn't say promises. He made a lot of promises. He made a lot of decrees. He made a lot of ordinations. The most incredible thing to me is their grammatical number, decree, singular. The Bible proclaims the divine king has one and only one decree. In the supreme mind of God, there's no plan B, no what, if, what ifs, no if thens, no flow charts tracing human history that contain lines and arrows pointing in lots of crazy different directions. No whiteout, succession of thought, none. One promise, because God works all things, Ephesians 1.11, after the counsel of His will. God has a plan. You think, oh, ever hear somebody say this? The plan of salvation. Let me show you from Romans, the Romans wrote of the plan of salvation. Well, who made the plan, and when was the plan made? The unbegotten Father, the begotten Son, and the preceding Holy Spirit, they all decree together. They all make a promise together. And here's the wonderful thing that gives me more praise to the Lord. He didn't have to decree anything. Did you know God was free to decree or not decree? He was free to either make you or not make you. He was free to say, I'll make worlds a universe. I won't make moon, sun, and stars, or I will. He could do whatever he wanted. He did not have to decree anything. Did you know God has free will to do or not to do? Pink said God was alone when he made the decree, and his determinations were influenced by no external cause. 
He was free to decree or not to decree, to decree one thing and not another. This liberty we must ascribe to Him who is supreme, independent, and sovereign. No wonder the London Baptist Confession said, from all eternity God decreed all that should happen in time, and He did this freely, consulting only His own wise and holy will. I ask you the question from Isaiah 40, who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or who has, as His counselor, informed Him? With whom did He consult, and who gave Him understanding? And who taught Him in the path of justice, and taught Him knowledge, and informed Him of the way of understanding? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit in eternity past had a decree, and they did it freely. Why did they decree, by the way? What was, what was the, the, the reservoir from which they decreed, as it were? Well, the answer, I think, is love. Now, Pat alluded to this yesterday, which I think is good. How can there be love in a single, solitary, monotheistic God of Islam? Well, maybe they might learn to love. He's loving to people. But how can you say God is love without a God that has less than one person? See where I'm going? So you say, okay, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. There can be love there because love has to have an object. If there's only one God, well, there's no object. Augustine taught that God is a trinity of love. That's interesting, a trinity of love. Love can exist by itself because it's not something. It's not existent unless there's someone to love. John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Oh, we're learning things now because I, I, when I say that, I sound like you. I just, I just heard you in what I just said. We're learning things now where in eternity past, God made a promise. We know God is triune. So the triune God makes a promise, and, and he, He's doing this promise not out of hate or spite or revenge or, or vengeance or anything. He does it because He loves, and He's loved the Son before the foundation of the world. One writer said, it doesn't mean God is simply loving. Judaism and Islam and Mormonism proclaim a God who loves. But when Christians teach that God is Himself love, they're saying that real love has its origin and essence in God. This is not true unless God is a trinity. Solitary gods can't be loved. They may learn to love, they may yearn to love, but they cannot love because love requires a relationship or an object. In eternity past, the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Father, etc. If love is part of God's nature, and it is, not just a byproduct, not just some kind of benefit, God can't just be one person. There is love in the Trinity. And what does this God who decrees freely out of love decree? Well, He makes this promise. Pass back to the passage, Titus 1-2. He promised long ages ago. Now we're coming into what theologians call and what some people call their radio show, the pactum, the covenant of redemption, the promise to rescue sinners. Martin Lloyd-Jones, God's great plan. There was a great eternal council held between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 
Do you realize, dear Christian, that your salvation was planned before the world was created? It is the realization of this fact that makes a man stand on tiptoe and shout out praise to God. It was all planned. Everything was taken care of beforehand. Where was my free will in eternity past? It didn't exist. It was the plan of salvation planned in eternity past. Lloyd-Jones goes on to say, the three persons met in conference, I speak with reverence, and planned it. Let us get rid of forever the idea that salvation was an afterthought in the mind of God. It was not a thought that came to God after a man had fallen into sin. It was planned before the foundation of the world. This is one of my favorite all-time topics because now I'm thinking about what is going on in the Godhead. As Pat said yesterday, an atemporal before time or pre-temporal time. What was going on with this God who promised? And, and why would Timothy, excuse me, Titus, get a letter like this to discourage him? Uh, you can't figure all this stuff out. It doesn't matter. It's boring. It's irrelevant. It's just this Trinitarian thing, too many heresies. Why would he try to write to this man on this island to encourage him this way, because this is what elicits praise. Take your Bibles, please. Keep your finger there, Titus. Let's go to John. I want you to ask this question. When did the Father command the Son to die and rise again? When did the Father say, Son, uh, this is what I want you to do? Go to John chapter 10, verse 18. John 10, 18. Thinking about what happened in eternity past with this unlying God who made a promise. John 10, 18, I have authority, Jesus said, to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. When did Jesus receive that commandment? At his conception? At his temptation? At his baptism? In the Garden of Gethsemane? When was, what's the answer to the question? In eternity past. That is amazing. This is a recurrent theme in John's gospel. Go to John 3, and I'm going to just give you a little survey of the word sent. Every time you think about God, the triune God, of course, I want you to think one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And I also want you to start thinking about the Father sends the Son, the Son obeys and goes, and the Spirit of God applies the work of Christ to our account. The Father sending the Son. The Son didn't send the Father. The Son didn't send the Spirit to go become incarnate. No, the Father sends the Son. John three seventeen. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 34 of John 3. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. Verse 29. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. God the Father sends the Son, and that was determined in eternity past. You could go to chapter 6. There's so many verses, I, wouldn't, I won't look up all of them. Chapter 6, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. When did he receive the elect? When did the father say, son, go rescue your bride. Go get the people of God. Go get my people. Go ransom the elect in eternity past. And this is the will of him who sent me, verse 39, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on that last day. Verse 57 of the same chapter, chapter 6. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. And you can see this sent language in chapter 8, chapter 10, and chapter 
11. Chapter 17 of John, if you want to go there, it's loaded with, it's peppered with this language of sent. And I want you to be thinking, the Father sent the Son. When was that decision to send the Son made? In eternity past. Sometimes you don't even have to say eternity past because there's no past in eternity. So you just say in eternity. And this is eternal life, verse 3 of John 17, that they know that you are the true God and Jesus whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, verse 4, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. When did the Father give the Son work to do? Answer? In eternity past. Amen. Let's close in prayer. I did my job. John said I could go for as long as I wanted. And I think I've told you before, the longest sermon I've ever preached was 92 minutes. And I went to a church, and you always ask the pastor, how long do you preach? Because you should just preach about the same. And he said, well, I preached 92 minutes, so I want you to preach 92 minutes. I thought, I only brought a 45-minute sermon. What am I going to do? And he said, what, you, what I want you to do at 46 minutes, because cassette tapes say 90 minutes, max L 90, but they're really 92 minutes, 46 on each side. At 46 minutes, you look at the sound booth and go like this. Flip over the tape. So 46 minutes, flipped over the tape, kept going 92 minutes. I'm so glad that sermon's not online. Side note, Paul wanted his understudy, Timothy, to have his progress be made known to the people he ministered to. The, the Lord matures people. Did you know that? And you grow slowly. You know, you're a little growing bean for the kids. And am I growing? Yes, they're slowly growing. But one of the things that the Lord does through his word is he also grows the pastor. And I probably would imagine that you've seen the pastor grow in Christ-centered preaching and desire to teach the truths of God, God-centered way, and you think, you know what? The Lord is even working on my pastor. Aren't you glad for that? I'm glad for that. Well, what does this have to do with anything? I have no idea, but I just needed to take a breather, <laughs> right? So you're like, okay, we're diving down so deep, eternity past. I mean, that's mind-blowing, really. You're like, wow, I thought Normandy was pretty cool, but now I'm thinking eternal counsels of God, a plan, a promise. Verse 4, I glorified you on earth, John 17, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. The Father sends the Son, not the other way around. Each truly God, yet the Godhead, one and divisible, yet the Father sends the Son. Godhead, same in substance, equal in power and glory, yet the Father sends the Son. And so what we say to ourselves is, I just have to accept what Revelation says. So let's talk more about the covenant of redemption. Let's go back to Titus chapter 1, please. Titus chapter 1. I just looked down on my notes, and all my notes took me all the way back to the very front of my sermon, and so I just thought about, might as well start over again, see how it goes. And I could have turned it into a 92-minute sermon again. The Father sending the Son, planned in eternity past, Where was your faith in eternity past? Did you know, dear Christian, you can't lose in time what was planned in no time, outside of time? You can't lose in time what happened in eternity past. In eternity past, before anything was created, before time began, God determined to go have the Son rescue the elect. The redemptive plan was planned. People were chosen. 
Their names were written down. It was individual. It was not a general plan, individual plan. If you're a Christian today, did you know before eternity, in eternity, before Genesis 1, that your name was included in the names of all the people that the Father said, go live for them, go die for them, go be resurrected for them. Mike Abendroth was thought of in eternity past. John Tucker was thought of in eternity past. People go, oh, the, the Trinity's irrelevant. The triune God had a promise, the Father and the Son, with the Spirit attesting to that very promise. For my glory, Son, go rescue Mike Abendroth. Go rescue the elect. And the Son said, I gladly go do that, Father. And I'll be obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross for that. This is called the covenant of redemption. This is called the pactum salutis, the council of peace. It's called the covenant of life, the covenant of designation. Before time began, the Father stipulated the conditions. He gave His Son work to do. Jesus is the surety, and He fulfills the covenant obligations. Unlike Adam, unlike Israel, unlike David. You know, you start reading about David, you're thinking, this is the Messiah, until you get to the Bathsheba incident. One the Swiss theologian said, the covenant of God the Father with God the Son is a mutual agreement by which God the Father exacted from the Son perfect obedience to the law unto death, which he must face on behalf of his chosen seed to be given him. And promised Jesus, if he gave obedience, the seed in question as his own inheritance and in return the Son in promising his obedience to the Father demanded of him in turn the right to demand the seed for himself as an inheritance. The will of the Father and the Son made a covenant. The Spirit was there. Some people think, where is the Spirit in all this? Of course He was there. An old woman once said to John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, I'm sure that God would not choose me before I was born. Sorry, <laughs> I messed it up. I'm sure that God chose me before I was born because He never would have chosen me afterwards. <laughs> Rescued that one. <laughs> God looks down the corridors of time and what does He see? Dead in trespasses and sins, slaves to Satan doing His will. He doesn't look down the corridors of time. Before time, before the corridors of the wormhole whole time. I don't even know who came up with the corridors of time talk anyway. What does God foresee? He doesn't need to foresee anything because it's planned in eternity past. The language could not be more explicit. Psalm 2, Jesus said, Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance. Jesus asked of the Father. Psalm 89, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. Thomas Brooks said, This pact between the Father and the Son was made, quote, in the presence of the great public notary of heaven, the Holy Ghost who being a third person of the glorious trinity, of the same essence, of equal power and glory, makes up a third legal witness with the Father and the Son. So what? Big deal. Salvation and eternity past. Triune God. Let me give you some words that should elicit praise in light of this doctrine. One, your salvation is secure. Salvation, that could be the word. Your salvation is secure. Two, love. Do you know God loves you? Is that okay for pastors to say? 
Could pastors say to believers, could I say to you today, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Would I be able to say that to you, believers? I hope so. I heard somebody the other day, they said, well, we don't talk a lot about John 3.16 and God's love for people. How would you like to have him for a pastor? <laughs> Ouch. We learn about the love of God in the Trinity. The Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Father, the Son loving the Spirit, etc. And you think, this is a God who is love, not containing love, but is love. And guess what? That love then is overflowing and expressed to His people. Spirit's love to the Father and the Son is expressed in the plan of salvation for you. His glory, that's certain. How about this? This is one of my... Here's, here's my favorite thing that I'll say today from someone else, Gerhardus Voss. The best proof that God will never cease to love you lies in the fact that He never began. The best proof that God will never cease to love us lies in the fact that He never began. Because He's always loved us in eternity past. Here is what he's doing. This love of God is true and it's eternal. I've loved you with an everlasting love, God said in Jeremiah 31, 3. Does anybody love you like that? Can you think of anybody who would love you like that? And you say, well, I've been married for a long time, et cetera, et cetera. I've told you the story probably many times. I was engaged May 6th, 1989. And I was married June 6th, 1989. 30 days like, why 30 days? <laughs> Tell us more. Because I realized that I wanted to marry this lady. And if she got to know who I really was and all my skeletons, I'm not kidding. She'd say no. Let's get through this in love stage because then I knew she'd keep her word, right? I always tell my kids, pick somebody that'll keep their word to marry because then when times are tough, they stick in there. And so I thought, I can't let her know all about me. I got too many Nebraska skeletons. You know what living in the Midwest will do to you? Is this Midwest, right? Okay. How many people are Roman Catholics? Nobody raised their hand. And yet God knew every single sin that you committed and would ever commit. And I think probably the sins we commit as believers are worse than unbelievers because we don't have to sin. God knew every sin that you'd ever commit. And in eternity past, he loved you. Has anybody ever loved you like that? I, I'm happy my wife loves me, my children love me. I'm happy you love me. You start thinking about, well, if my wife respects me, I don't really care if you do, because I can live with that respect to my wife. If everybody else respects me, but my wife doesn't, that's a hard way to live. Similarly, too, is it not true? Nobody really loves me. I can live with that if the Lord God of the universe loves me. And if he loves me like that, the triune God, then that goes a long way. Third word I want to give you is safe. You're safe. Because the Father and the Son and the Spirit together in great unity of will and purpose determined to save you, dear Christian. You're safe. You can't undo the work of God planned in eternity. If you say to yourself, can I lose my salvation? Wrong question. Can God lose a Christian? That he promised 
to go die for. The son said, I will go die for those. The father said, go die for them. And the spirit seals you to the day of redemption. If you could lose your salvation, you already did. You can't lose in time what was determined before time. Let me give you another word. Humility. So what? God's triune. So what? There's the covenant of redemption. Well, you're saved, you're loved, you can rest, and now humility. We aren't really even supposed to properly debate the Trinity, right? It's kind of like Moses sees this bush that's burning, and he goes over there to kind of scientifically investigate it, and what did the Lord God say to Moses? Take off your shoes, this is what? Holy ground. Before this whole, we have to dissect it and analyze it and kind of put it under us where we're in charge and we figure it all out. We are to be underneath this in the sense that we receive it. We're glad to receive it. Of course, we can study it to learn more about God. But God isn't on trial for being triune. And so we just humbly say, Lord, we accept it reverently that you're triune God. Everybody wants simple stuff these days. Simple religions work like this. Work real hard, you'll get in. Try real hard, you'll make it. One writer said, off with your shoes, please, for the Holy Trinity is holy ground. Away with your ordinary arithmetic. Mathematics will not suffice. The need is rather for a listening ear, an obedient heart, rapt adoration, and careful engagement with the Holy Scriptures. Isaiah 55, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so my ways are higher than yours, and my thoughts are higher than yours. I don't know about you, but I need good doses of humbling. I don't know about you, but I have plenty of self-righteousness and plenty of pride. God is not mentally manageable. He doesn't fit into our boxes. John Wesley said, bring me a worm that can comprehend a man, and I'll show you a man that can comprehend the triune God. At least Wesley had something right. <laughs> he had a lot right. I'm happy that I can't get my arms around the triune God. I'm finite. I'm sinful. I'm fallible. And it should not give me any consternation that as a creature, not the creator, I can't Figure it all out. Pat talked about that last night. Apprehend. You know, you have the, what, do, what do monkeys have? What kind of tail do they have? Huh? Prehensile. Look at that. See, we know big words about monkeys, but we don't want to talk about inseparable operations. No, just kidding. <laughs> Prehensile and you know, like comprehensive and apprehensive and other things, getting our minds around it. It's hard. I mean, I think of Zephaniah too. Seek righteousness, seek humility. You want to be humble? You study the doctrine of the Trinity because you realize how great God is and how we can't figure it out. Let me give you another word. Hope, specifically in evangelism. 
If you have someone that's a loved one and you're like, I've tried to talk to them about evidences, I've tried to talk to them about irreducible minimums, I try to talk to them about afterlife, life, death, this, that, and the other, do you know if that person has been given by the Father to the Son in eternity past, they will certainly believe? And without that hope, forget your door-to-door evangelism, forget praying for people that get saved, you have no hope at all. But with that hope, I just walk around, I evangelize people, and I'm thinking, I don't know if you've got an E over your head or not, because I can't see spiritual things, but I just know I'm supposed to give you good news. Jesus is happy when I talk about uh, His work. The Father's happy about the, me talking about the sending Son, etc. And I'm just going to preach the gospel, because I know if your name was in that promise in eternity past, you will believe. Let me give you another word, sanctification. So what about the Trinity, the doctrine of sanctification? What would a pastor do if he had to sanctify the congregation? How would that work out? Probably sometimes all three pastors sitting here have tried to do that. Have we not tried to sanctify the congregation? We usually do it with law, right? That's the right way to do it. In ministry, we aren't ministering alone. Sunday school rooms, evangelistic outreaches, preaching. We're not doing this alone. By the way, dear congregation, it goes the other way around. Your pastor does not have to be perfect to minister the Word of God, does he? We're thinking about the triune God who, Paul said, I'm in ministry for what? I'm in ministry for people to get saved. I'm in ministry for people to learn and grow and live in holy conduct. And I'm in it for the hope of eternal life. Who is adequate for these things? But when you point as an under-shepherd to the great shepherd, it's all going to work out. And that's what I love about gospel ministry under the triune God, because I as a pastor, along with John and Pat, don't have to hold the Damocles of, you better obey or you're going to lose your salvation talk. It's everywhere in evangelicalism. What if I were just to tell you there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus and there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ? What might you do, dear congregation? You might take advantage of it. So what do I need to do then? Well, what pastors need to do is explain the gospel more clearly, but instead they start saying, you know what? Uh, yes, you're initially saved and justified, but there's going to be this final day of reckoning for your works and God's going to judge you. Better make sure you have a lot of works. It's everywhere. Pastors don't need to do that, not with, in light of the triune God. No more Damocles over the flock. You preach free and sovereign grace. You encourage the congregation. You tell them in Christ there's assurance to be found, confidence. If I were to ask you what pops in your mind if I say judgment day, I hope you think certainly the son did the work that the father told him to do in eternity past and he did it so well he said at the cross it is finished and therefore when I'm trusting in this risen savior judgment meet judgment day for me is not judgment day Jesus has been judged it will be a day of vindication for me people say well creeds boring creeds who wants to read them they're not they're not even like from the Bible if you read the Belgic confession on last judgment you probably cry for joy. You probably cry for joy. It talks about judgment for the unbeliever. And then it says this, in contrast, the faithful and elect will be crowned with glory and honor. The Son of God will profess their names before God his Father and the holy and elect angels. All tears will be wiped from their eyes. 
And as a gracious reward, the Lord will make them possess a glory such as the human heart could never imagine. So we look forward to that great day with longing in order to enjoy fully the promises of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm not afraid of judgment day because I'm in Christ. You shouldn't be either because the work of the triune God planned in eternity past, worked out in real time, secures my salvation. Judgment day I'm not afraid of. I have an advocate. By the way, if you ever have to go in, in legal cases and have a, have a trial or sue somebody, just have some news for you. You better get a good lawyer. <laughs> Trying to contextualize here. We have a good lawyer. He's called the advocate, the Lord Jesus. The righteous one, 1 John chapter 2. And so we stand before God based on not our work, but on God's work. I'm not afraid of judgment day. You shouldn't be either because of the triune God's promises and what the Lord Jesus did. We are righteous, declared righteous. You couldn't be more righteous. Do you want to do good works in light of your salvation? Of course, but those good works aren't going to matter. You've heard me probably tell the story before. If you ever watch MasterChef, this cooking show, reality show, and they've got a certain uh, Gordon Ramsay, and sometimes he's mean to people because they cook something wrong, and then he takes the two sides of the bagels and puts it on the people's side of the head, and he said, what are you? You're an idiot sandwich kind of thing. That's Gordon Ramsay. I'm like, oh. What if a seven-year-old bakes a cake for Gordon Ramsay, and he judges it? Not enough flour, not enough salt, not cooked all the way through, too dry, fail. But what if that seven-year-old is his daughter? and it's his birthday. Then what does he say? You idiot. <laughs> I hope not. He receives the gift, although not perfect, because he receives his daughter. And you know what? Why does God receive your, your gifts, your ministry, your work, even though tainted by sin? Because he receives you. It's amazing to think about. Spurgeon said, the moment a sinner believes and trusts in his crucified God, his pardon at once he receives salvation in full through his blood. Romans chapter 5, we've been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Spurgeon said, you know what? I'm going to tread lightly, but here's something theologically that I'm going to think about that great triune council in eternity past called the covenant of redemption of the pactum. The Father, I, the Most High Father, do hereby give unto my only begotten and well-beloved Son a people, countless beyond the number of stars, who shall be washed from sin by Him, by Him preserved and kept and led, and by Him at last presented before my throne without spot, without wrinkle or any such thing. I covenant as father by oath and swear of myself because I can swear by none greater that these whom I now give to Christ shall be forever the objects my, of my eternal love. The Holy Spirit. I hereby covenant that all the father gives to the son I will in due time quicken and I will show them their need of redemption. I will cut them off from all groundless hope and destroy their refuge of lies. I will bring them to the blood of sprinkling. I will give them faith. I will work in them every grace. 
and they will be presented at last spotless and faultless. And then Spurgeon said of the son in the pactum, could it be the son says something like this, my father, on my part I covenant that in the fullness of time I will become man. I will take upon myself the form and nature of the fallen race. I will live in their wretched world and for my people I will keep the law perfectly. I will work out a spotless righteousness which shall be acceptable to the demands of thy just law. In due time I will bear the sins of my people. Their exact debts will be on me. The chastisement of their peace I will endure and by my stripes they shall be healed. My Father, I covenant and promise that I will be obedient unto death, even death on the cross. I will magnify thy law. I will suffer all that they ought to have suffered. I will endure the curse of thy law, and all the vials of thy wrath shall be emptied and spit on my head. I will then rise again, I will ascend into heaven, and I will intercede for them at thy right hand. And I will make myself responsible for every one of them, that not one of them who thou hast given me shall ever be lost, and that I will bring all my sheep of whom by thy blood thou hast constituted me shepherd, I will bring every one safe to thee at last. And I think of that. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. When you think of the Trinity, you should think of praise. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this work uh, that your Son has done, that you sent Him to do. We thank you for the Son in going and redeeming us. And we're thankful for the Spirit of God who seals us to the day of redemption. In Jesus' name, amen.